0: Yeah, calling yeah. oh,
1: back to calling all beings i'm your host dj and guess what we're giving love and attention to the law enforcement community tonight and they're going to tell us how this should be going not what we doing but what we should be doing and that's why we brought these experts on and there to help me do that of course is the co-creator executive producer technical director and all around cool brother of this joint you all know him as money nathan he is known He is known community-wide as Nathan, man. He's like he's become like Madonna, man. What's going on, brother?
2: (laughs) Man, DJ, uh, it's going well. Good Good to be here. Good morning, Uh, good evening, good afternoon, good night, wherever you happen to be. Uh, It's great to do this show. I'm really excited. I don't think anyone has done a show like this from this particular perspective. So I'm really excited to get into it.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right. And thank goodness that And this was... This basically uh, our uh, the guest that 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 uh, basically begot this entire episode was Keith Taylor. He told us when we met him in New York that this was something that he thought should be talked about, uh, and so I said, okay, we could have him on an interview, just him, or we could bring on some other law enforcement officers. Um, to, to speak about it with him and maybe come up with other ideas, particularly because one of our guests is very steeped in the Bigfoot community, and one of them is from the U.K., and maybe even my hometown brother will get in here. So uh, without further ado, uh, let's bring in a former uh, NY PD officer, detective, SWAT team member, uh, current professor at John Jay, uh, part of people. Put those hands together for Professor Keith. Taylor!
3: How's everybody, DJ, Nathan, cabbies out there. So yes. happy to be here today. I've been waiting, uh, uh, so, so excited about the opportunity to, to share um, my information as, as well as uh, really where I think law enforcement and first responders in general need to go. And I, I want to make something clear as more and more law enforcement get involved with this, There have been folks that have been working, trying to get attention to this, working hard for for decades. Uh, And and so I don't want to, uh, you know, pretend like law enforcement has not been involved. They have, they just have not been supported. And with all the stigma, all the uh, government interference, all the, uh, you know, the the various types of things, officers are normally very uh, cynical and very, very suspicious. By nature, that's a part of the job. They get lied to all the time, so they're they're used to con artists and folks with mental health issues, and and and, and other types of ways of, of uh, uh, diverting or or uh, or not getting at the truth. So now that the government, the federal government, has finally come out and stated that yes, UAP is a thing, although they're slow with all the facts. They have admitted that they exist, which now opens up the door for law enforcement, first responders, mental health, medical to start thinking about this issue very differently than in the past. We have to get rid of the stigma. We have to uh, think about rational ways of dealing with this.
1: Keith we got to get the other brothers on here because yes, they're gonna respond absolutely. to what you just said but but yes. but I can hear this is the time and this is the place from Billy Joel echoing with those sentiments that you just espoused so <laughs> amen <laughs> it's apropos as a New Yorker yeah all right uh yeah secondly uh we're gonna bring on uh my brother from uh Bigfoot uh excuse me Sasquatch Odyssey uh his Brian King Sharp Um, and, um, he hosts a a great podcast, but he did have a, like, I think it was 16 years in Atlanta PD. So part of people put those hands together for Brian King. Sure. What's going
0: on guys. What's up? Good morning, Brian. I come on the show just for your openings. Just (laughs) so you can talk to (laughs) me. (laughs) Who needs coffee? Everybody does that. Right. Mm -hmm.
1: I love you. Well, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry that we we caused you to get even less sleep than you might have gotten. So uh, but I'm really glad that you're here because I really wanted you in on this conversation. Uh, next, we're going to bring in um, a brother that we met through the community. Uh, and a lot of times people will tell you know, people were like, wow, you know, that. It adds legitimacy to the topic when we have people like all three of you in the community, in particular for UAPs, uh, when we heard about Ash. And it's like, wow, man, this guy like is so legit, uh, so cleared, and yet he believes in our topic and wants to uh, rally for a disclosure. So without further ado, the UK's former... Counterterrorism police officer and current entrepreneur with his own damn company. Put your hands together for Ash Resby.
4: How's it going? It's not—it's not my company, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, good to be here, guys. Um, thanks for the invite, and uh, yeah, really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, it's, it's a really good lineup. Nice to meet you, Keith Brian, and um, yeah, can't wait to get—can't wait to get get down to the business discussing this topic.
1: All right, so uh, a couple couple of orders of business going on. Um, so I have to I have a hard out uh, at half past the next hour. So w- we have to use brevity is the key today with all of your uh, questions and answers to one another, uh, and hopefully uh, my high school teammate Sean Blakely will come in. Uh, Sean was, uh, he worked for the, I guess it's the New York city, uh, department of what the environmental is that, the, that, covers those reservoirs, well, Keith,
3: environmental Preservation, uh, protection, I think.
1: Yes. So they had, uh, some U activity, uh, UAP activity over the Croton reservoir. Uh, all, I would say most of you probably, uh, aside from Brian have heard about activity over those reservoirs in New York city, um, that are outside of New York city, about 40 miles North. Uh, And then Sean was in Wappingers Falls uh, PD, so hopefully he'll be able to join us. But uh, Keith sort of set the table for that. So what I'd like to do, um, Nathan, I'd like to go to, to, to Brian and Ash to just respond to that opening commentary, if you would. So, Brian, please go ahead, sir.
0: Sure. I think there's definitely a place to start with law enforcement responding to some of these types of calls, dealing with like you said, I think one of the big things is mental health when it comes to people having those kind of encounters and calling the police and talking about it. You know, people have asked me plenty of times on other shows, did I deal with that as an Atlanta police officer? And no, I didn't. I mean, we had some weird calls and people hearing things go bump in the night. And most of it was attributed to probably somebody trying to get in their house or what have you, but could it have been something else? And if it had been, and they had told me that, how would I have dealt with that at the time? Because I dealt with cryptid stuff and I was into the subject of UAPs. I saw a UFO when I was 16. I've talked about that on your show before. That's right. So yeah. that's about where my expertise stops, right? Is I saw that, I didn't know what the hell it was. It was clearly not ours. And, you know, then you throw police officers into these situations. And then obviously there's the Bigfoot thing. You get out into certain areas in the country. You know, we didn't necessarily deal with Bigfoot in the city of Atlanta because it's a huge metropolitan area, but, there are other officers out there that are responding to calls. I've talked to people. I've had people on the show where you have police officers coming out and casting footprints of what's believed to be a Sasquatch. What do you do with that? Where do you take that? Hey, Sarge, look what I got, right? You know, right, right. They're going to look at you like you got three heads when you pull back into the precinct with some Bigfoot cast. You know, what, what do you do with that? But I think there's definitely something to talk about there. And I'm here to learn because – you know, UAPs outside of seeing one is not necessarily my forte, but I'm very interested in the subject. And I I think the UAP disclosure that Keith referred to is probably going to push some of the other balls down the court as far as Bigfoot maybe in the future. So I'm excited about all of that. And I'm, I'm definitely here to put my two cents in and, and learn from you guys.
1: It's interesting that Brian already knew what my follow up was, which was going to be have other officers that have encountered had Bigfoot calls called you. And obviously they had. So uh, with that, let me go to Ash. Go ahead, sir.
4: Yeah, I think I echo w- w- what both Keith and uh, Brian have said so far. I mean, I think one thing to stress is, you know, being a police officer is quite often a tough, high pressure environment. You have to be very resilient. Um, and I think a lot of the time that puts police officers off actually reporting this. This uh, encounter, such as this, important this, reporting this topic, uh, even when they witness things themselves. So I think we've got a twofold thing here. We've got how do you respond to uh incidents that the public may may call into the police and then also how is that dealt with internally you know how do you as a as a police force police department actually deal with that when your own officers are out there experiencing these things so i think there's kind of two branches to the topic really i i think that needs to be looked at um but i think keith kind of hit the nail on the head when he was talking around you know naturally we we're, we're cynical and suspicious of of people because you have to be doing this role uh and yeah unfortunately a lot of the time the police do get called out to Potentially other areas that other agencies should perhaps be picking up the slack to mental health. I mean, it's a big thing in the UK at the moment. Um, The biggest police force, Metropolitan Police, have now said they're no longer attending certain mental health calls because really it should be um, the health service picking those up. And they're only going to go out when it's actually an incident that uh, there's a direct threat to life. So um, I think a lot of the time, yeah, the police are getting called out to things where perhaps this topic is it's been encountered, but perhaps they don't know how to do it because they've never had any mechanism in place to to be able to report that or push it up the chain or know exactly what to do. So, um, I, yeah, I'm really open to this discussion and, and think we're definitely talking about something that, that there is there is a need for.
1: Hey, Ash, real quickly, is this something that you could have spoken about with colleagues when you were uh, still part of the
4: the, the force? Uh, interesting question. You you answer that? Uh, you asked that actually. I would say when I first joined back in when was that two thousand and seven? No, I think it would have been ridiculed. I think there was there was too much stigma involved, and people would have just ribbed you for it. Uh, I, you know, I had several colleagues on a different team to mine. We had a bit of an overlap in our shifts. They did actually witness um, a strange strange encounter. I think I told you about it. This was this is basically. They were out in the in a rural area, part of the rural area we used to cover. I, I worked for a county force first, then transferred into like a city based force. Um, but, yeah, they, they experienced what can only be described as a, a white floating horse literally just, just floated above them in front of their patrol vehicle in the middle of the night. Um, yes, yes, you did. One of these guys, ex-military, uh, the other guy, tough kind of sports playing guy, you know, they're, they're not people you you would expect to make something up. There's nothing in it for them to make it up, apart from just being ridiculed by their colleagues. So, um Seeing how that was responded to and how people basically took the pee out of them, um, no, I don't think you could come out and talk about this stuff. I think things have gradually got better, though, particularly as you know all the disclosure efforts going on in the US. I think that's kind of opened things up, but I would say we're still several um, steps behind you guys out uh, in the US.
1: Yeah, understandable, just because the the it, in some way uh, the government does lead the way on this, and since uh, you know people have come out and talked of it that are of a high um, high standing within government uh, then it enables other people to talk about it. Like Fravor is the the reason why I'm talking about it. Uh, so Nathan, uh, I was wondering if you want to uh, just, you know, have your own commentary, but do you want to read what uh, Tiffany's got uh, sure. here real quick?
2: Yeah. Uh, so uh, Tiffany, thanks for the comment here. So learning from my husband being a paramedic for 26 years, there is also a portion of everyone in this field of first responders of getting jaded. Um and I think a little. You each touched on this a little bit. The aspect that uh, you've kind of seen it all, you've heard it all, and uh, you know, how do you take these kinds of things seriously? Because you've got other really serious things that are happening right now. Other calls to respond to. How do you prioritize something like this related to those other actions or activities that are that are taking place?
1: Uh, Keith, do you want to go with uh, Absolutely. that one, sir? <clears throat>
3: Yeah, the first thing is for police agencies to develop policy protocols, training, uh, provide equipment um, on how to respond to anomalous phenomena. the the whole range. They need to be given direction and guidance as to how to appropriately and properly handle these uh, jobs, just like they would any other jobs that they'd have. Car accidents, robberies. Uh, this is it's it's. Historically, you could even have dozens of police officers witness a UAP incident and it be, uh, you know, uh, documented in video and and photos, and it makes not a difference, goes nowhere. And as long as we don't have uh, government support at the national security level, DOD, um, uh, DHS, these other agencies providing officers and other first responders with quality um, uh, guidance around how the best practices on dealing with UAP, we're going to be stuck in a situation where we have to ignore or stigmatize incidents like this. So uh, there's a lot of work to do. There have been folks that have worked for, as I said before, decades, as well as folks that have, uh, I'll I'll just give you a few quick examples because we're short on time. Richard Lang, he's a spent decades working in the field, uh, working with OSAP and others, and he is a a former law enforcement. He's just come out with a book dealing with how first responders should deal with UAP. There's another uh, group of officers in Arizona. They have UAP PD, which is designed to help officers tell what's happened to them in a safe environment because they're so afraid of what will happen to their careers, losing their families, their credibility and standing in the community if they talk about what they've experienced. Uh, and also in, in, in London, uh, or England rather, Gary Heseltine, he's put up a, a proofos police reporting UFOs, sightings, that database for for decades. Uh, he's a former Royal Air Force uh, officer detective. So you have these, uh, and of course, the, the gentleman that we have on the show today, uh, they're, they're folks that have put in work and years, dedication towards anomalous phenomena, But we need our governments collectively to acknowledge this in a much more succinct way and provide uh, the tools that officers and other first responders need to help the public in public safety terms and in security. And not just sightings. For, all we talk about is sightings. I want us to talk about contact and also what happens when abductions take place or experiences. We have to stop beating around the bush and get to the heart of the matter. There's certainly a lot of documentation historically that speaks to the validity of this issue.
1: Can I get an amen from anybody? (laughs) Hey, Brian.
0: Yeah, I would definitely say amen to that. And here's here's the thing that it always comes down to me, and maybe this is a question for Keith. You've done a lot of work in this area, but I know at least, and I'll speak from my personal experience, I won't speak for anybody else, but with the city of Atlanta, everything comes down to resources. It's a money issue, right? I developed training for our department. I, I wrote standard operating procedures, and I developed training for, the U.S. Department of State, as well as the Department of Justice. And every single time I did any kind of training outside of tactical training or responding to, you know, whatever the case may be, you plug it into, you know, XYZ 911 call. Anytime it was outside of that scope, it was always the answer was money. And I agree with you that there has to be something put in place. But I do think it has to be rolled out and has to roll downhill from the national level because These small municipalities and even larger departments like the city of Atlanta, they're not going to adopt anything that's going to cost them any more money. That's not directly related to putting cars on the street or, you know, new tasers or whatever the case may be, the nuts and bolts kind of things of doing the job. Everybody, you know, city of Atlanta, we had about 2000 officers. It was nothing like NYPD, but 2000 officers is a lot. So. Anything that the department does, they have to do it 2000 times. Right. So the cost is exponential. What have you come up with? Have you run into that when you've had those conversations with people, Keith, in these departments? And what is the bottom line or have you given any thought to what the bottom line may be for some of these departments that are looking to do some of this stuff? Is it just a policy thing and some training and in service, or would there be equipment involved? And how do you answer that question? Because I know when I have that conversation, that's the first thing they say is it costs us money, so we're not going to be able to do that. How do you deal with that or get over that obstacle when you're having those kind of conversations?
1: Keith, go ahead, brother.
3: Sure. Uh, so uh, definitely, you remember after nine eleven. Uh, There was a a great effort that that created the Department of Homeland Security and they uh, restructured the IC agencies on how they dealt with uh, uh, foreign-based terrorism. Well, we need to have a similar kind of effort with all of our uh, IC and and military agencies at the national security level that inform Homeland Security, Department of Homeland Security, so they can uh, provide the training courses, get the equipment um, and and provide policy guidance, just as they did wh- after uh, 9-11 in dealing with uh, 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 counterterrorism issues. So that regardless of whether you're from a small agency, 18,000 agencies, most of them under 50, so they're small and, and have limited resources, or, or the larger agencies. I did a survey in June, an informal survey, just emailed 300, the top biggest police agencies in the United States and asked them, what do you have for policies, procedures, uh, regarding uh, sightings, contact experiences? Of course, all of them come back with nothing. We have nothing of relevance dealing with uh, those issues. So um, that's what I expected because this is, we're talking about, we're speaking about the obvious that there has not been uh, the real concern given towards training policies and uh, and procedures for officers and other first responders to uh, to do um, do the work that needs to be done. It's been filled in by voluntary organizations admirably, but uh, agencies like MUFON, or rather organizations like MUFON and others that have worked hard to try and fill in that gap and provide something for the public to to report this information for it. Uh, and and so we have to get the our governments to recognize that it cannot be a voluntary effort. You wouldn't go, you know, report a a robbery just to a voluntary organization. You would want it, you want a formal report done. You'd want the data created. You'd want our best scientists to have access to that information, to come up with um, uh, information that's going to help us understand the phenomenon. Right now, we have not a clue as to the real numbers of of incidents that occur because there's no infrastructure, formal infrastructure to report, like pilots have had to deal with for many years, mm-hmm. um, or um, you know the stigma. It means stigma means that people, even if they're officers, are not going to report it, and in some incidents have occurred with uh, injuries and occasionally deaths, but again, we don't know because we're we're as a society refusing to acknowledge this, this instance. So we would have, much, oh, I'm sorry, I'll, I can no, talk let me, about yeah, this. Yeah, we got I'm to shorten up the questions sure. and
1: answer. I know we're all passionate, but just because of today, we can do another, another show of this. We could do a part two, but for today, I, I only got an hour cause I, I literally have to hit the road and drive to Georgia and uh, dealing unloading my motorcycle in the dark is not something I want to do. Cause I'll probably dump it from the trailer uh, and then be really upset. Um, so anyway, uh, Linda, Linda Thompson has been wanting to connect with Keith, uh, so I want to put her comment up on the screen, and it says, uh, I'm research director for a company that will put on seminars for first responders and do investigations. So the private sector getting involved and provi- uh, providing any, you know, funding any, even one seminar would be awesome. So uh, so that's something, if you and Linda have not connected, Keith, I we should make that happen. Uh, what I wanted to say in answer to Brian's um, query is that you know a construct could be something like that. There, if 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 this federal agency uh, like Homeland Security, what Keith alluded to, is created, and there are fund sites created that could funnel down to the state level. So now you have a federal trainer going down and training at, at, at as a minimum at the state level. Then once you have that state certified trainee. Then or trainer, I should say that trainer could go to the county level and train at the county police officer level and then and then perhaps down to the local level, you know, depending upon. But but certainly the money could come from a federal fund so that that police uh, agency isn't saying we're not interested because we're not paying for it. Because, as Brian said, that's the first thing they're going to say in Metro Atlanta and probably many, many other agencies as well. Money's tight and and. uh uh, items where the rubber meets the road like he said tasers and cars and weaponry and tactical gear and protective gear etc comes first but that is at least a construct whereby you could have federal trainers training state then county and then down to the local level and each one getting certified to train in how to deal with these calls that's just that's a thought i'm throwing out there ash go ahead sir
4: yeah, so um, I agree, you know, this needs even in the UK this needs to be dealt with on a national level uh, because although we have 43 different, you know, regional forces covering all the different counties across the UK, um, policy and guidance and best practice is set nationally by the MPCC, the National Police Chief Council, so a lot of the sort of steering groups and the, and the actual policy decisions come down from the top down, so you go, that needs to happen here as well. Um, it happens with all other, you know, incidents that we deal with like keith was saying it's no different you know you're dealing with a robbery or you're dealing with victims of crime there's a kind of a policy put in place of how you should deal with it or best practice so i agree on that front um but i think for me the biggest thing here is someone somewhere would really benefit from having access to all of this data, these data sets that are out there. You know, someone there's there's a lot of data going missing here, all these different reports, all these different encounters people are having. Um, someone somewhere, you know, whether it's a Black Project program, if we want to get go down that route or whoever, somewhere even academics, someone with an interest, genuine interest in this topic would really benefit from having the data set. Just like we do with crime data, crime statistics, crime trends. We look at how we can reduce crime and, you know, look at the patterns and have a lot of analysis done on that we could be doing the same with this topic and we're missing out on that so i think when you're trying to sell this to the higher ups or to the powers that be that for me is is a big selling point so look you're going to have access to this data something might come out of it that's usable elsewhere or might have a benefit elsewhere um, but so that that's one point but i think yeah on another another point i just want to raise is Again, I kind of touched on the data thing. Who else is uh, the public going to call? Because the police end up picking up a lot of things that aren't necessary police matters. But there's no one else to call. The ghostbusters aren't real, unfortunately. So you can't just call yeah. the ghostbusters. You're going to call the police. So the police first responders, they're going to be the first ones there dealing with this. And they have the capability as well. Okay, they've got the right skill sets, the right experience, the investigative mindset. And they've got the forensic capture capabilities as well which I think is really important because a lot of a lot of these incidents involve physical interactions. We're talking about landings, uh, abduction cases. Why should we not treat them any different? We would deal with a, a criminal incident. Um, so I think that's really important as well. The capabilities are already there. They just need to be used and, and uh, harnessed for, for, in the right way.
1: I mean, I was going to say and I was going to ask you if you were to say to the NPCC, like propose something like this what do you assume their response would be or what do you presume it would be
4: at the moment they'd probably just laugh in my face and say we've got a million and one other things that we're worried about um okay. you know at the moment trust in policing is very um, topical in the uk we've got uh we've had a few really high profile incidents of kind of um corrupt criminal officers recently so i'd say public support is probably at its lowest level i've ever known it to be at um at least in, in the the most you know, immediate future, uh, recent times. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think it's on their agenda at all. There's other political, geopolitical, political issues going on. So I think for the UK, it's certainly not something um, that would be on their radar anytime soon. I don't think. But I think that that is a reflection of the wider uh, interest or lack of interest in the topic for the general British yes. public at the moment. Like I say, you're a bit further along than we are. Um, obviously, those involved in the in the community and in, involved in the topic are, you know, are interested and up to speed what's going on. But I say it all the time. I think the average person on the street, if you want to spoke to them and said, What do you think about UFOs, they'll probably just laugh at you or go, oh, I'm not I don't know, what do I care? I'm I'm struggling to pay my bills or uh, right. I'm more worried about which celebrity is going to be voted out of some, you know, celebrity program on TV. So um <laughs> yeah, I think we're we're some way, way way um behind you know what what's being proposed here. But I think it's definitely worth having a conversation now because we need to get to that point. And only by having these conversations can we get there.
1: Oh, um, thank you for, for that. No, I know. I mean, you guys are a little bit behind. I, I thought you were going to say that it'd be tough for you to have that conversation just because nationally it's not happening up above that would, that would gain their interest the way we have the potential to do here because of people like Keith and others. Um, so, uh, Linda Thompson saying Richard Lang is the founder of their organization, Keith. So you and Linda, will make sure that you guys connect. Uh, Brian, um, it, it's not uncommon in the Bigfoot world for police to get called out to somebody's fairly rural house or cabin or trailer because uh, one of those creatures is, bon- you know, is banging on the house. This is a refrain we've heard over and over and over. So I'm just curious, like, wh- I mean, how how is an officer supposed to deal with that, Brian?
0: Well, I-, I can tell you most of them deal with it from the very nuts and bolts approach. They start looking at it. There's a possible crime here. They, it, for us, it would be a, you know, a suspicious person, you know, that would be a call that would come into APD for example, but anywhere in the, I live in a very rural area here, <clears throat> excuse me, in North Carolina. And if somebody got called out to a call where somebody was beating on the side of a house or somebody heard some rustling outside, the officer's trained to approach that like it's a person, right? There's gotta be a person involved. That's not a part of the household that's calling us. So they, we as police officers, we're wired to do that. You approach a, a any situation from A to Z and you just go through the processes of, okay, what's going on here? Do I see any footprints? Do I hear this? Do I see that? What did you hear? What did you see? They start doing these questions. And when it becomes apparent, like the person that I had on recently a couple of weeks ago on the show, her and her mom saw a Bigfoot outside their window and called the yes, police, the police responded and they watched them take several casts of these footprints. Now I thought that was a little odd because I didn't carry casting material as a police officer <laughs> in the city of Atlanta. Maybe that's a thing out in this rural area. This was out West in near California. So okay. maybe that's a thing. I don't know, but let's say that it is right. And you might do that because you're, you know, that's part of your SOP to carry that because there might be a tennis shoe print that you need to cast on the scene or what have you. You know, the the real answer, the short answer to that, honestly, DJ, is I don't know what you would do that, right? I don't know what you would do with it because outside of actually the officer seeing what this this person may or may not have seen and saying, that doesn't look like a person. I don't know what you would do with that, what box you would put that in other than maybe filing a report. And here's the thing. I don't want to sound like devil's advocate here, but I will tell you some of my personal experiences with the department that I used to work with. There's also crime stats to talk about here, right? And Atlanta is a touristy town. A lot of these places are touristy towns. The last thing you want to be known for is an alien abduction or aliens landing in people's backyards because that might deter deter people from coming out. So I know there's a lot of games that get played with crime stats, right? For example, as an officer, if I went out on a crime scene, somebody says, hey, somebody was trying to break into my car and steal whatever, or steal the car. If there was only damage to the car and there was nothing missing, that's a damage to property report. That's not a, that's not a car break in. So right, and you get into all those little minutiae of how do you categorize these things, because there may be a police chief or whoever is sitting at the top who doesn't want to be known for that. So even if there's things in place for officers to deal with those, then how do you categorize them in your crime stats? And, you know, do you want to make national news for being the first police department that. Verifies an alien abduction or a land. So there's all kinds of things that go into this, and and I'm so glad that people like Keith are working on this and are able to answer some of those questions because they're going to come up to some of these police departments. I know the chief in Atlanta. I know Sherbom. I worked for him directly for years when I was there. He's a phenomenal dude, and if you sit down and had a conversation with him about this right now, he would be open minded to that conversation. I'm I'm very there. You go, Keith. (laughs) However, he may not be appointed in that position next year. You know, there's a new mayor in these municipalities. And as it moves on, if there's not a policy in place that's already there for them to follow, the next chief may look at it completely different. So there's all kinds of moving parts that you got to think about as well. So, again, I'm, I'm very thankful that we're having these conversations and talking about some of these things now, because when they come up in conversation, I think we can better address them with the people and the powers that be.
1: Well, also that Keith has all these email and phone number and addresses to contact all these. But I, I was going to say, Brian, I think the situation you're talking about out in California, there are probably municipalities and agencies that are that know that Bigfoot is there. And that's probably why they have the casting material. But in other cases, you and I have heard of police officers being called out and it may be in the thicket or in the woods behind somebody's house. And they're like, look, I'm not going in there. You, we've heard that. Uh, and, and it's very real. And the reason that I bring that up is not to point out that that police officer was scared or those police officers were scared. All of us would react that way because that is the effect that, that, that a, a being in the presence or close proximity to a Bigfoot has. And my point for bringing this up is because that's why you need training. You need to know this is what I can expect when I get out there. And at least if you have that in your mind and you have that training, okay, I'm going to go out there. And if this thing is there, it's going to instill fear in me. I need to know that and be able to control that fear and hand and not necessarily go in that thicket or go in the woods. They don't have to do that, right? Um, they don't have to go in and try to apprehend Bigfoot uh, at, you know, in the woods behind somebody's property. That's not okay. But at least if they know what to do, you know, and can react calmly, it'll calm down the person, uh, who, who has the home. And then, you know, a plan can maybe be put together. Now we're starting to talk about putting up cameras at the person's house. Cause when people put these IR cameras and stuff outside the house, uh, and, and they're from these different angles, Bigfoot doesn't come they don't want to be photographed and they know what those are they can see those light sources and they don't come so that's the quickest way to get to get rid of them from your house is by having a lot of cameras anyway i i, I just want to bring that up brian just to to clarify that that agency in california i guarantee they were very at at, at home and uh and, and had that knowledge that that sasquatch was a part of their community more than likely so anyway uh Key, uh, money, Nathan, please. Yeah. Take it away and question for whomever you want.
2: Yeah. So I'd like to get, uh, I want to go Ash and Keith and Brian on this one. So um, it strikes me that a lot of this is about data collection and it, it. I'm trying to think of parallels. And one parallel that came to mind is uh, it took a long time for women to be taken seriously by first responders when they were saying that they were the victim of domestic abuse, right? There was a time period in our history where You know, people would show up and they would just, oh, this is just a hysterical person and I don't have to even treat this very seriously and we're not going to report on this at all. And so shifting from that perspective to, "Okay, I need to collect information. I need to categorize the information and store it and analyze it later because there may be something that's actually taking place. So I'd like to get your perspective on that. Uh, Is that where it begins? It's just better data collection, better data organization. Uh, in addition to just sort of the, the skills, the people training skills to, to to connect and relate with someone that is experiencing something of this nature. So, Ash, would like to get your thoughts on that.
4: Yeah, really interesting point, actually. You make that point. Um, I think you're right, actually. Maybe that's a way of opening the door to this and, and getting that early buy-in. Um, because once you've then got that data, then you can start proving, well, actually, there is there is something here and we need to prepare for it. Um, because at the moment, I mean, I'm sure it's similar in, in the States, but, you know, you go to an incident, there's different closing codes for the calls. So depending on how you've dealt with that incident, it's going to be closed in a different way on the system. And it might be closed with a report being made. It might be closed no further action. It could be an intelligence report. There's, there's numerous different closing codes. There's, there's literally hundreds in, in the UK, depending on what you're, what you're dealing with. Um, but there's certainly nothing on there for paranormal activity or, you know, a, alleged UFO encounters or anything like that. It'd just be... It will just be closed with sort of like a, a no result kind of cl- calling uh, closing code. So I, yeah, I think that's a really good, really good point you make there, Nathan. Perhaps that's that's the first starting point is to actually have these categorised in the, in existing systems and have a method of that reporting happening, and then afterwards all that analytical work can be done in the statistics, just as so they will be done for crime types, different crime types, like you mentioned, domestic abuse. There, uh, it's no different for assaults or any other criminal um, t- incident type. Um but at the moment there is nowhere to report that. Uh, the only way of really getting that information would be on a kind of free text search, just in case you know one of the officers just happened to type that type that into the instant report. Um other than that, there's there's no not not to my knowledge, unless there's some secret system out there. Um there's there's no categorization at all. So I think that's a really good point. And that's certainly a little baby step that perhaps we could take to get, get more interest in this. Great. Be interested to hear what Keith thinks as well. Yeah, Keith, what do you, what do you think? Total
3: agreement with that. And uh, I, I'm looking at uh, other disciplines that are related to police work. Uh, UAP Med has put out uh, medical and physical effects, psychological, sociological effects for individuals that encounter this. They are ahead of the game, and, and they're really ahead of their uh, discipline. Medical, psychological, they interact with law enforcement in dealing with daily routine types of, uh, of uh, things. And so we need to have the other stakeholders involved in the legal community. Our laws must change. They must reflect the reality that people are, are dealing with. You can't simply ignore it and 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 not have these uh these encounters unaddressed. So I am in totally, uh, total agreement um, uh, with uh, what, what he said. And uh, also think that we need to have not just law enforcement involved in updating its power, it's it's the way that it deals with UAP but all the other disciplines that are related. So just wanted to Fantastic. That.
2: Thank you, Brian.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with and I echo what both of the Keith and Ash said. I think that's the easiest way to get some buy-in from these police agencies is to just say it's a simple code. When your officers pull in and they do for us it was a 17, a report written in Atlanta. And Add one thing, maybe 17P for paranormal, right? Or like Ash said, putting some nomenclature into the reports themselves where it indicates maybe, I don't know exactly what's going on here, but there's something a little abnormal here that we might need to code this a little bit different than just a regular report on a possible break-in or this person's missing, but... The doors were locked from the inside and, you know, all these weird things that can happen on these calls that need to be documented and then maybe get some policy change in place in some of the departments to follow up on those and the way they're categorized. And but again, it boils down to data. Everything has to do with data. And if you can collect the data, no matter what it looks like within the reporting system or for the department at the time, at least the data is there. Because I think there's a lot of cases where like DJ sort of said, officers go out and maybe it's a possible, you know, prowler, whatever the case may be. There's nothing there. There's really nothing to report. So you pull it in as such. There's nothing to report here. I'm moving on to the next call. But if there's some training in place. And if officers are trained that this could possibly be what you're dealing with just as a possibility, then maybe they'll take it that extra step and spend that extra two or three minutes to document and say, you know what, there wasn't a whole lot here, but I'm going to write a report and just document the information and document what the person said so that we can maybe go back and look at that And who knows a year from now, we may look back on some of those reports and say, man, that was probably a UAP that that person saw, or this was that kind of encounter that they had or what have you, but it all boils down to data. So if you can get the police officers to write the reports and then get the municipalities to keep those reports, then we can go back and dig into the data and maybe even do some retroactive stuff to, to see what, you know, there's possible UAP and other events that have been documented by police in the past. So yes, I believe the data is the key.
2: Mm, Yeah, for sure. DJ, if you indulge me, one more follow-up on this. So, um, so the mental health component of this entire thing um, we often think about it of the from the perspective of the mental health of the person that's having the experience but we've all heard of the hitchhiker effect where just being engaged with someone that has had an experience of this quality can can bring the experience home to you personally in a very real way and so how do you think of that aspect of this that that you know we're so used to dealing with, things that happen in in what we would call objective reality. But now what we're saying is that subjective reality, the experience of the individual and how they view the world is a part of this phenomena itself and a part of that data collection that we may need to take seriously. So Ash, I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, how would we go about uh, taking seriously that that those aspects of this that in the past would just really be like, well, I thought about the case and I you know I thought about it some more and maybe I came up with an insight on it. But instead of that, it's the case impacted me in a very, very real way, and I'm having new information that is coming to me that is directly
4: related to whatever the experience may have
2: been. Wow.
4: again, really interesting point. Um, I mean, look, there's precedent for that, isn't there? I mean, we deal with PTSD. Um, in, in policing, law enforcement. Um, and and yeah, perhaps sort of 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't as well, well, it was known about, but I guess it was kind of covered up, and it was kind of that bravado of, oh, well, you know, we're just tough, we're rough, we've just got to go next year if we can't worry about that. So I think we've seen a, a big step change, certainly here in the UK in relation to mental health. It's a lot more widely discussed uh, amongst you know officers mental health and there's a lot more support mechanisms in place that there never used to be um, each police force has its own occupa- occupational health team as well which has access to you know expert um, psychologists and counseling as well so there are those there are those mechanisms already in place um, for you know traditional
2: last uh oh cash bros yeah think yeah i, think
4: um, oh, yeah, I was going to say you t- you talk about oh, you're bringing back. That- Oh, sorry, where did I get to? <laughs>
1: you I think you were lost in the ether, but we were able to pull you back from that other that co-located physical reality that
4: Grush was talking about. I was in the multiverse. I don't know what <laughs> you last heard. Um what was the last you, bit? we were talking
3: about, about the PS, PTSD and how mm-hmm. the climate has changed in terms of people's acceptance and departments, officers' acceptance of that mm. help
4: yes definitely yeah so so yeah we've seen a step change in relation to PTSD from traditional incidents you talk about bringing things home Nathan you know officers bring home the 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 sheer trauma they have to see and witness on a daily basis so um you know that the precedence is already there in relation to traditional PTSD but perhaps we need to have the conversations around yeah how would you how would you deal with this and you know if you're bringing home additional things we need to make sure those existing um support mechanisms have that built in so in the UK every police force has its own occupational health team which has an expert uh, access to experts or clinical psychologists and counselling etc and there's also a thing called the trim process trauma instant risk management so this is almost like you know if you've been involved in it in and it comes out of the military i think i think um, the us may have it as well um but basically if you've been exposed or involved in a, in a traumatic incident you can have a chat with someone that's been specially trained um you know amongst your peer group so basically just go through like a risk assessment form it's, it's like really informal and it basically scores where you're at you know, on your on your level of, do you need perhaps a little bit more help and support? Where are you at? You check in every few weeks. So again, there's already these processes there. We just need to perhaps make them fit for purpose for this as well. So it's not like we're having to reinvent the wheel. We just need to adapt them perhaps. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think we could get there. There's, there's certainly precedence. Yeah, that's that's great. Keith, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I'm in total agreement. I wanted to just mention the thoughts I had as he was talking is that Uh, We need to, education doesn't just need to be for first responders, it needs to be for the general public. Uh, Academia needs to change that. We need to have uh, UAP uh, uh, majors in universities. We need to have uh, the religious uh, institutions on board and we need to have government agencies, not just first responder agencies, adapt and, and accept the new reality That that the federal government in in the United States has announced. So instead of just sort of uh, not having any real plan, we need as a society to give clear guidance and rational information to help everyone in society, not just law enforcement, to be able to uh, understand the actual reality, not just what we believe it to be. We need We need to be guided by facts, not by beliefs. Love that. Love that. Brian, what
2: do you think? I definitely
0: agree. And and I won't go back over everything they said. I agree with what they said. And I think in addition to that, we need to talk about And I think we touched on it a couple of times here about giving officers some tools to put in their go bags and, and put in those patrol cars and go out to some of these calls and deal with, like DJ said, there's something in the woods. Should I go and engage that? Should I take this any further? And a a friend of mine, Dr. John Berenchok wrote a book called psychological horizons and scientific Bigfoot research. And it is for more for the field work researcher who goes out looking for Bigfoot, but the principles in that book can apply, I think whole cloth to some of the things that we've been talking about here in preparing the officers, the first responders, whether it's people on an ambulance or like you said, any medical personnel or police officers going out to some of these calls and allowing them to prepare yourself. You can prepare yourself that fight or flight can sort of be trained in certain scenarios to deal with some of the things that you face when you go out into these calls. And I think there are people like, Dr. John Berenchok, who can help these police departments do some of this training and talk to some of these officers and include that maybe in their 20 hours of in-service each year or whatever the case may be. It doesn't have to be 15 hours of training. It can be a 30-minute block into training and give them just that couple of tools. And that is completely free, by the way. Those tools don't cost anything to put in their tool bag and take out on the calls and in addition to the PTSD and the things that go along with that, I think giving them something in advance that can maybe help avoid some of that PTSD on the back end because they're better prepared going into the calls, I think is really important as well.
1: And and you, you tailor the training, no pun intended, Keith, you tailor the training to, to the particular department because obviously you're not going to be... At a, you know, like the New Rochelle or Yonkers uh, area police talking about Bigfoot. I mean, it it wouldn't really make sense. But you might if you were in Binghamton, you know, or if you were somewhere in the Catskills in Sullivan County. Um, So you have to tailor the training to what they're likely to encounter in their in their area. Um, I want to say that also I want to read Tiffany's thing here and then what I'm going to do we only have a little over 10 minutes left I want to like give everybody an opportunity to ask one another a question or bring up a point that you think is salient so let's see what Tiffany had here where's that in blue okay let me read this Uh, well because it's as you said it's already on the record then the next person that comes along will have that info just as it happened with the Beast of Bray Road. Uh, A folder of encounters was made. Hmm. I didn't know that you I'm sure Brian's uh, probably familiar with that one. And let's see what's the next one that she had here is she says, uh, I think that it it that's what it is accepting the new reality. It can't be swept under the rug and laughed about anymore. We are so far past that now. Yes, certainly. And, you know, uh, uh, Ash has a tougher hill to climb, but uh, it will it will come. It's just going to happen in its time. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I do agree with you, but let, let me, uh, let's go around the panel. Let's start with Keith. And then just, uh, if, if you have, you want to ask another person a question or you just want to make a point, go ahead and then we'll pass along. Got about 10 minutes left.
3: Okay. Well, I'm going to be very quick. Uh, the point I wanted to make is this is, this is something that's achievable and, and, and we can absolutely do it. When I was teaching, uh, uh emergency management courses on behalf of the department of homeland security the homeland security hired contractors private entities to do the training we all got certified and we did the training and and another uh, a great resource uh, it was mentioned before richard lang is doing this he's got feet on the ground he's he's working with uh, various sheriff's office so there are private efforts uh, non-for-profit organizations all kinds of folks that are working towards this goal of getting the information out to the people that can help our communities. Uh, but we need <clears throat> our federal government to address this issue and, and not in a happenstance kind of way. We need direct um, uh, policies and procedures, best practices. I'm sure they have plenty of classified information that would they could sort of clean up and bring over to the, um, to the unclassified world. So we can get this done as a yeah. global community.
1: Sorry. Yeah, and I, I love that. Uh, like like I think what Keith's alluding to there, if you had a, a federal council to decide how this should be done, it doesn't have to. It could be a contractor. That may be the easiest, cheapest, most efficient way to get a credentialed person on site at a state agency or a county or a local agency to train it doesn't have to be someone who's carrying a badge it says department of homeland security etc so that that's a great point that's something for them to figure out um so yeah uh, go ahead brian please
0: i'll just this is directed at keith because i think this is definitely your wheelhouse i guess the bottom line for me is what is the first step to get this done and how can we in the community help push that along is it contacting our local police departments is it contacting members of congress what is the next step in pushing this ball down the field and getting it done and what can we do to help make that happen
3: it's uh getting the, the the folks that affect policy like international association of chiefs of police contacting them of course what you're hearing over and over again, especially in social media like uh, X or Twitter, is contact your local representatives. Your congresspeople need to know, your senators need to know uh, that this is a real issue um, and that we're just at the beginning of public awareness that it is a real issue, that we're not as a society prepared. And this is a major issue that is going to just continue to snowball as People accept the reality of it. What we want to avoid is this uh, this trauma of ontological shock, of people thinking that something bad is going to happen. We've had fifty years of entertainment showing that uh, anomalous phenomena are something bad to be feared, and and you know uh, more intelligent or whatever it's going to take us over. We don't we don't. Uh, we need truth. We need facts, not stuff that uh, is 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 just made up. And and the only way we're going to do that is to have our representatives, not just in the United States, but throughout the world, work on this, even at the level of the UN, because I know there are efforts to uh, get this uh, uh, acknowledged from that that perspective.
1: I love it—a top-down and a bottom-up approach, uh, because. In theory, we're above the center, the congressmen and senators. I know that's kind of a joke, but, you know, we could be emailing them and talking to them. And then what Keith said, uh, you know, reaching out to local police chiefs and the international uh, you, you were talking about the uh, international police chiefs organizations and national police chiefs organizations that way. So it's going, you know, bottom up, top down and. And then, you know, legislators will start to listen as they are now with with UAP. The, the, the model is there. The, mo- the model is already there. It's just, you know, Tim Burchett. I don't know how much if Brian's familiar with Tim Burchett and how in, he's the Tennessee congressman. How enga- he's a oversight House Oversight Committee, how engaged he is on this topic of UAPs. And people tell me that uh, either he has family members or that he most certainly believes in the existence of a Bigfoot or Sasquatch so there, the the models there uh please go ahead uh ash
4: yeah i was just gonna say uh, just to add uh, i think we need to start off small here go for the easy wins you know there are there are some quick wins i think um and when we look at how other topics of you know other keith touched upon the medical industry for uh, medical sector for example you know creating little e-learning packages or just getting little bite chunks of uh, learning out to different uh, experts, I think, is a good first step. I suffer from a, a straight, like a rare um, blood condition and it's not very well known by by doctors and one of the things the charity that that, that deal with this um condition or or have knowledge of is they, they've done a free email package and they've pushed it out to all of the the um the, the doctors nationally the general practitioners gps doctor surgeries um and it's a free email package it's like 15 minutes just to raise awareness and i think we could do something similar here just to get it out there just so it's at least it's in people's minds and i think we have to start small um just getting back to um how this go how we start in the UK here, I mean, we did have, there is precedent here as well. We did used to have a a UFO reporting desk and that closed in 2009. Someone in the MOD decided it wasn't worthwhile anymore but there was a mechanism in place where police forces could actually report this. Um, there was a, you know, an official document that would be filled in and it was standardized. So no matter where you were in the UK, the same questions would be asked and that would then be fed into the system and someone else somewhere would, would analyze that. That went, there's nothing there in, pro, in place now, but I think, you know, again, that's a, that's a fairly easy thing to put back in place, particularly narrow things, digital, it's all online. Um, you know, it's, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. It just needs to be the will, the willpower there and the, and the, the want for it, which I don't think we currently have. Um, but yeah, I would say even just getting some training out there, just so the officers on the ground have some kind of like, um, tactical option when it comes to dealing with this is, is really important.
1: Yeah. And there are people, I mean, the most, the most existential experience that you're probably going to have is, is probably Bigfoot. I mean, there's probably more of those interactions in rural communities than there are, uh, UAPs, Uh, where a police officer is being called out although we do have you know and keith knows of recordings that are out there uh where we have heard them talking about it on radio you know even close to my home yorktown heights uh police department uh but uh relative to the officers it has been you know proven that there are a lot of uh investigators that have been in the woods that have been in close proximity to these uh creatures and have been able to control their fear and be able to act um i don't even want to use the word responsibly but be in control of of the of their emotions and their actions without just totally losing it which has happened uh we could also tell you a lot of people that just sit there and freeze and they don't know what to do they've peed themselves if they were hunting it all depends on what that particular creature feels you are as a threat to them at that moment and what ability they have to instill fear in you. And I don't know that all of them necessarily have the same ability that's in question. We'll get into that with Sibylla Irwin (laughs) in a couple of weeks. So tune in for Sibylla Irwin, just to give you guys real quick, uh, a Bigfoot uh, enthusiast purchased a property that was getting a lot of activity such that the family moved out. Sibylla Irwin moved in and spent five years investigating on that property uh where with habitation so we'll get some interesting uh anecdotes from her uh nathan your your final uh thought question comment uh anything sir
2: yeah well i just want to say this has been a fantastic conversation and it's obvious to me i know dj you're you're thinking this as well we've got to do this again there are so Mm -hmm. many other facets that connect with the experience and expertise that each of you have that we need to get into that. I mean, this is just the start of the conversation. I appreciate all of your enthusiasm for this, all of your willingness to take it seriously, your, your advocacy for it. Uh, just having this conversation in the way that we're having it makes it easier for other folks who come along and are interested in this topic, it makes it easier for them to have the conversation and push that ball further down the road. It's a team sport. And I think we're making a lot of progress. So can't wait to get back into this with you guys in the future
1: yeah i would I, I would like to get into your uh, individual uh bona fides as well so we can brag about you uh a little bit in your your careers uh we uh, are honored to have you and i want to thank you for your service uh to these uh communities and cities that you worked for and in in the case of ash you know i probably The entire of the UK was his area of responsibility uh, with counterterrorism. But all of you, we really appreciate what you've done uh, to put yourself on the line, put yourself out there in these different roles with law enforcement. And um, we thank you, Mr. Uh, Keith Taylor, Ash, Brian, for Money Nathan. This is DJ saying peace out, one love. We'll see you down the road. And as always, we're wondering what's up around the bend. Thank mm-hmm. you.